thank you all for coming out for the panel on music and sound design. My name is Ian Koss. I'm an independent sound designer here in Boston where I work with Radiotopia and WGBH. I'm really excited to be joined by three um, colleagues coming from different kinds of work, different ex uh, backgrounds. Um, I'm mostly just excited to hear what you all have to say. Um, so maybe I'll quickly introduce everyone. So on my left here, this is uh, Jeremy Bloom, sound designer, technical producer at WNYC Studios. He can be heard on Two Dope Queens, Radiolab, so many white guys, most recently Nancy. And he's also working on a soundscape project at the Statue of Liberty. Um, to his left, Diane Ballin is a sound artist from Maine. Uh, she produced sound for the exhibit The Marines and Tet the Battle That Changed the Vietnam War, currently on exhibit at the Museum in DC. And finally, Alex Overington is the composer and technical director of Radiolab Presents, More Perfect. Before joining More Perfect, he also produced and co-created the Peabody award-winning show, Meet the Composer. So, um, time is short, and what we're basically gonna do is, each of us is gonna talk for like 12, maybe 15 minutes, just to share some of our own work and our own thinking. Given this format, uh, despite the title and blurb for this, I wouldn't think of it so much as kind of sound design 101. This is not really uh, a great format to like actually learn how to do this, but it's more the sort of, uh, the way I'm thinking of this is a way to get a sense of how we think about sound design from a bunch of different perspectives with some examples. And at the end, if you can hold your questions, I'm hoping we can have kind of a discussion, have some time to sort of speak across what we're all doing um, and hear from you all as well. So let's uh, jump right into it with, uh, we're gonna start with Diane. In thinking about sound design, I was reminded of my students at the University of Maine. I taught radio theater for a number of years and we wrote the script, created the sound effects, recorded that and also recorded the mix. Most of the students were musicians, so they actually created the music, and we recorded the music. And in coming to this panel, I was reminded of the students because what I'm hearing in a lot of podcasts these days is that people are adding every sound effect and pieces of music at every step of a story. And I find that predictable and a cliche. It kind of stops the storytelling and gets a little bit in the way of the story. Our mind's eye takes us to the places where you as a producer will take us. And music is a beautiful way to um, highlight a story you don't have to hit someone over the head with music. I've heard music coming in to podcasts similar to my students mixing, kind of hitting you over the head, coming in loud, very interruptive, um, where when you think of music for film, music is often really used very subtly and uh, to create an emotion. And so, my recommendation is to use music for a reason. Not too loud, not too low so as to obscure the voiceover, and here and there. 
The decisions you make reflect the continuity of your production and whether or not you keep the listener listening. Here are some examples of my sound design. My first piece is called Shortcuts, and every engineer has done this, taken all the outtakes of all the ums and ahs and throat clicks and everything we cut out and put a piece together. What I did when I started doing this, and I was kind of showing students what I don't include in my recordings, was I actually loved what I was hearing and then went back to some recordings and added a few choice words here and there. The music was John Adams' Foxtrot for Orchestra and it matched the pace of the voices. I edited very tightly and I, if I had left a space between all those short words and phrases, I think that the piece would have lost its rhythm. And so you know we can do it. Well, yeah, sure. I'm trying to think of a word. I'm just trying to think of a word. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It is kind of like a oh no. Let me think for a second here. Of course, the people whose ums and ahs were in that were horrified to hear that piece. Um, next is Musical Instrument Dreams, which is a sound installation of mine exploring the repeated dreams I've had for over 30 years of searching for musical instruments. The dreams are interwoven among a multi-layering of sounds. Descriptions from string players and instrument makers are triggered by the content of the dreams. I, record, I created the sounds that I hear in my dreams by playing broken musical instruments. I recorded a violinist in a racquetball court and struck the strings on the inside of a piano for that rich reverberant sound. I wanted to create a musical sound signature for when the listener entered the dream state, when a dream was read. And that is what you will hear in the introduction and in the dream that follows. When a man from a violin shop says, we're descending into the cellar now, I created a short cascading mix of musical sounds to take us down the stairs. When a man talks about the dreams and says, and all the day's realities, worries, thoughts, emotions are gone, I created a small mix of fragments of what we just heard as the day's realities. Musical Instrument Dreams is 46 minutes long. This is how the piece begins. Every now and then, I have the same dream. I'm walking into a secondhand store searching for musical instruments. I could be dreaming something completely different, and then in that dream, I find a musical instrument. I find them everywhere, lying dusty on workbenches and crowded shops, hidden in the darkness of attics and old houses, and caught within the context of other dreams. 
But when I find the instruments and try to play them, most are broken, strings are missing, and sometimes I have to pick up an old box heavy with nuts and bolts to get to the violin beneath it. I've been dreaming this for over 30 years now, and when I have one of these dreams, I am delighted. I call them my musical instrument dreams. feel that room down there with a couple of hundred violins in various states of disrepair and some interesting instruments I just don't want to sell so they end up in racks in, in the catacombs. Musical instrument dream. Two people are standing in a corner testing out the violins. One violin looks more like a dobro, but it is a violin and a very small one. A woman is trying out another violin which looks more like it, but again, it is small. I search through the debris beside them. Then I find a box of violin bows and a violin in very bad shape. Every bow I pull from the box is broken, and when I finally find a good one, there is no rosin.
Isn't that beautiful, that piano? That was the piano string being struck. Um, this next excerpt, I, what I really like about it is the continuity of the music uh, for the radio play Darwin from my work at the National Audio Theater. The sound bed you hear is a radio theater mix which combines both music and sound effects. Notice how seamlessly this is mixed. I interviewed Dwight Frizzell, who co-wrote the piece, and a participant who got a part in Darwin. Although interviewed at different times, there's not a drop in volume from one voice to the next. Also, I didn't cut the voices close together. I allowed a little time to ride on the flow of the music. The music bed segues into the play. I'm Dwight Frizzell, and I'm here with Michael Henry, my co-creator, to do Darwin, an opera, or an approach to an opera. This is our audio theater version, a piece that combines words and characters from Darwin's time in the 19th century, and things that he referenced, and with other characters and some fantastical kind of hybrid beings that are partially my name is Jason Hooper. I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. This is my second time at the National Audio Theatre Festival. And I have a part in Darwin, part of Captain Fitzroy, and we're waiting for our first run through of the day. December 17th, 1832. Tierra del Fuego. Those who know the comfortable feeling of hearing the rain and icy wind beating against the windows whilst seated round the fire will understand our feelings. It would have been a very bad night out at sea, and we, as well as others, may call this good success bay. And finally, back to musical instrument dreams. I think of this next, next cut as less is more. Here is a woman who found the violin she played as a child and brought it into the studio. We hear her reflection up close and personal. Her final words ride on the sustain of a piano note. You feel like you're eavesdropping. Pius Bezold. I think this bow was my first bow because all I got was a violin, I didn't get another bow. And it's very pretty, and I just, yeah, I guess it was, you know, it was really my first musical instrument. It really has been sitting in attics for many years. Other than pulling it out for my son, I don't think this violin's been touched for about 20 years. Yeah, I, I guess I always thought that I'd play it again sometime, or one of my children would. Thank you. Great, I'm Jeremy. Um, in October of 1799, in a town called Rashid in Egypt, a French soldier was posted to go to a fort 
the French army told him that he needed to reinforce the fort. It was falling apart, I guess, and uh, his job was to go and make it stronger. And so he was working on this fort, and he, I imagine him standing next to a pile of rocks, and he was, you know, doing whatever French soldier masons might do. And he noticed in that pile of rocks there was one rock that looked a little strange. Uh, it was flatter than the others. It had some scratches on it. And he looked closer and he was like, hmm, this looks important. And he showed it to his boss. And the scratches were words. And um, back then Rashid was called Rosetta and he had just discovered the Rosetta Stone. And the Rosetta Stone has three languages on it, as I'm sure most of you know. It has uh, Greek, it has, I think, Coptic, and hieroglyphics. And it was sort of the key to understanding what the hieroglyphics said, because it, act it acted as a common denominator. as the same text in all three languages. And without the stone, uh, or with the stone, linguists were finally able to decrypt hieroglyphics. Um, I think about this a ton in my job. I think of sound design as a language, but translation in sound design is really, really tough. It's really hard. Um, in order to collaborate both with your your storytelling peers or your clients, if you have that relationship, or with the designers you hire and ultimately communicate with your audience, you have to be able to talk about sound in a really effective way and in a precise way. Uh, but the problem is English is not precise when it comes to talking about sound. Um, so if, as a sound designer, if a client approaches me and they tell me, I want, uh, a sound, I want the sound of my story to sound thick, or timeless, or foreboding, or nostalgic. All those things can mean different things to that person. Uh, the sound of foreboding could mean something totally different to my client in their ear than it does in my mind's ear, or the same with any number of terms. And so the, a, a huge part, not my entire job, but most of my job is finding ways to translate those terms and find a way to really quickly reach a common understanding and get on the same page um, with my collaborators. And so to do that, we need something like this. We need a, a com some sort of common reference, like the Rosetta Stone, to unlock the meaning of those terms and make sure that we're actually talking about the same thing. Um, in the visual design wor world, uh, this is also a, a really common thing, and they use a tool called a mood board, which Dylan also um, uh, mentioned in the last panel. And for a visual designer, a mood board is a collection of materials and colors or textures. It can be any number of things. It can be words. That it, its purpose is really to, uh, uh, to prompt a conversation and to have something tangible and physical that everybody can be responding to in the same way. Um, and so I really like to draw from those techniques as a sound designer and create a sonic equivalent to that. And so as a sound designer, um, I always try to start a project with a mood board, which takes the form of a kind of playlist of sounds. It um, is usually music, it's not always music. And the point of the mood board is, is really to just make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. So instead of saying, oh, I want it to sound nostalgic, we can say, oh, I want it to sound nostalgic like this. Uh, and we know that we're talking about the same thing because we're in the same room listening to the same thing. Um, so I, I think this isn't 
you know, this isn't a new idea for musicians or sound designers or composers or audio storytellers, but there are some things that I've, um, as I've tried it many times, uh, there, there are some things that make it a more effective practice uh, versus, there, there are some ways that it can be way more effective. Um, and I've found myself when I don't follow these principles, sometimes it can backfire a little bit. Um, and the first, the first tip that I would have is uh, it's really important that the mood board shouldn't reflect your personal taste as a music consumer. Um, the point of the mood board is not a collection of songs that you grew up liking or uh, listen to at the gym or drive to. It really is to prompt a conversation about the story that you're trying to tell. Um, and oftentimes that can be partially aligned with your taste but if it's only aligned with your taste, you're going to miss opportunities of different ways that, the, uh, that your story can sound. Um, I didn't know what quite, quite to call this, but I, I think uh, it's not a casting call, which is to say that when you're listening to these tracks, at least when I do it, the very first thing I tell my client is none of these pieces of music or sounds are going to make it into the final product. That's not what this is about. Um, we're not auditioning a bunch of songs to choose one to make it into the product, we're trying to find a way to communicate around these tracks. It's also really important, you know, related to, to escaping your taste, it's really important that the, the elements of the mood board represent as wide and diverse a palette of options as possible. Uh, this is one that I really struggle with, and whenever I create the first draft of my mood boards, I listen through critically, I'm like, oh man, these are all telling the exact same thing. How can we, what, what, what's the opposite of this track that I can present to really um, have a conversation that represents the widest breadth of vocabulary about sound? Um, related to that, limit se selection anxiety, which is to say um, if you have 20 tracks on your mood board, uh, you're just going to overwhelm yourself, you're going to overwhelm your collaborators, and you're not going to be able to make effective decisions because you'll, be so, you'll be drowning in choices. So when I do this exercise, I like to limit myself to maybe uh, six to ten tracks or so. And chances are if you have more than that, um, there's probably redundancy, and you can probably listen through and say, okay, really, these two tracks are saying the same thing, and even though I really like both of them, we can let go of one because they're saying the same thing. And then finally, and most importantly, um, ultimately, this is around having a conversation, and it's really important that you set the expectation that it's okay to have strong reactions. In fact, to encourage strong reactions about these tracks. So. Um, Negative reactions are often way more productive, actually, than positive reactions to get that conversation going. But I, I ask for both. And what I do I, when I guide my clients through this process is I don't say, what track do you like and what track do you not like? I say, huh, what, what do you, it's not even about liking, but what do you respond to about this track positively? What do you respond to about this track negatively? Uh, so I had an opportunity to go through this process recently, as I do on every project. Um, I'm currently working on a museum that's being built at the Statue of Liberty, and has a number of sonic components of it. Uh, but one of those soundscapes that I'm making for it is a very, very abstract soundscape. It's um, essentially just ambient music that is intended to play in this gallery. 
that's a rendering. Um, and my client approached me and they said, uh, we want to we find a way to use sound to make this space more contemplative and more, uh, have an, a sort of an uplifting feeling, a kind of timeless feeling. And I thought, okay, um, that's cool. But what, uh, what, what do those words, you know, not only what do those words mean to you when you're saying them, but how can we find a way to use sound to communicate those things as you um, predict them? And so we went through that exact mood board process that I described. And so um, I wanted to limit that selection anxiety, so I limited myself to eight tracks. I played them eight pieces of music or sounds, and I tried to make it as diverse as I possibly could. So, you know, maybe a contemplative space like this could sound like this. This is all fairly famous music. Or maybe it sounds like this. Or maybe it sounds like this. These are goat bells I recorded in Turkey. And ultimately, it's not about what, uh, which ones I like more or like less, but you know, I presented a lot of options like those that represent different ways I could imagine contemplative sound. And I encourage my clients to give their, their responses. So for instance, on this track, my clients respond really positively to the, the kind of rhythm. If you listen, there's sort of a boop, bop, thing and it, it feels they said when they were listening to it oh it feels like it's always moving forward um, in a way that we really like and that it doesn't you know because this music will be playing indefinitely we like how it feels like it's moving forward but it doesn't feel repetitive um, but at the same time if we listen sort of to the background there's a kind of crackly quality a lo-fi lo quality And they said, hmm, uh, we don't, we don't, we're not responding well to that. And we talked about it more, and they said, uh, or we, we sort of talked about what that meant, what that sound communicates. And we realized, oh, that, that is sort of a reference to recording technology of a specific era. Um, and we really want the space to be timeless, so maybe we shouldn't be referencing any specific sounds that are related to an era, whether it be the crackle of a 78 record going around, or even a piano being musical technology of a certain era. We listen to this track, and one of the designers in the room, the visual designers in the room said, hmm, that kind of reminds me of water rippling, or of, the, of uh, gentle flames going, and that was something that we had never thought of before, but it was actually really appropriate to the architectural site of this gallery, because you look out those big windows, you're surrounded by water, that's the original torch of the Statue of Liberty, which was replaced in uh, 1986, that's the one from before that, and so, huh, maybe something like this could actually be really appropriate in reinforcing that setting, but it sounds kind of thin, um, and we want to feel really enveloped, uh, so those are the kinds of conversations that we had, and from that, uh, this, this is the mood board, it's a one, one piece of paper, and these are each of the tracks that I played with um, 
some descriptors that I put on to sort of provide them a vocabulary about what we were listening to, and then their responses. So, um, you know, the first one, they, we all loved how it sort of, that was what uplifting meant to us, was the sound of that. So we had that common thing. When, when we say uplifting, we're talking about the sound of that track. Um, and from those qualities, I came back and I kind of put together these guiding principles of what we were going to create together. So like I mentioned before, then, you know, the really cool thing about this um, that, that I really love is a lot, maybe half of these things were things that um, I certainly wouldn't have thought of or they wouldn't have thought of had we not gone through this process. So by listening to these pieces of music, it sort of um, unveils design principles that we wouldn't have thought of before, whether it's avoiding recognizable instruments because of the thing that they communicate or the water or the uh, lo-fi. Um, and that, that's what I really love about this kind of process. So I took those and then um, with a variety of you know, music production techniques, I created layers that represent each of these qualities. So I'm, I'll play that for you. Um, So we started off with that kind of shimmering quality that they were looking for, that they, a lot of the tracks that uh, they respond positively had this quality to it. And this was created from taking um, an orchestral recording and freezing it. It was a Carnival of the Animals, it's the very beginning, and it's just frozen in one moment of time and kind of shimmering. And then to get a sense of water, I added this layer, which is um, some recordings of mountain creeks and brooks bubbling, but then put through a filter to give it the same pitch as the music. So it's sort of, that's sort of the source material is actual water, and then it was filtered to give it a, a resonance. We added that forward moving rhythm. Some swells. We'll hear in a second. And then some more uh, low end bass sounds to fill it out and make it give it that enveloping feeling. So I think this is really the difference between design and um, you know just just art. Like these were all that all those sounds emerged from that conversation, and um, that's just one way to do it. But I hope you uh, think about the way that you talk about sound with your collaborators, or even even if you work alone, uh, this is still a process that you could engage with with yourself to make really sort of um, bold decisions about music and sound that, that communicate effectively. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Mr. Kals. You guys must have practiced, because you're like 15 minutes oh, really? on the dot end. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I don't trust myself, so I'll set a timer. Um, can I just like give you a, a look when yeah. I want to go to the next image? Um, so you can go to the next image. 
Great. So the big theme today was thinking about music and sound design. And I guess what I wanted to think about uh, was how we bring those two things together. I think sometimes we think of them as two separate elements. Um, but in my work, I feel like I've been trying to think about how they are really one and the same thing. So I want to start with a little illustration of how this sort of works in a podcast. Let's go to the next slide. I saw a, a talk recently by a, a film sound designer, a guy named Mark Mangini, who did sound for the Max, uh, Mad Max Fear Road. And just in hearing him talk about the process, I was reminded and stunned again by how big an operation a film is. So this is the IMDB credits for the sound department and the music department for this film. And you have titles like sound effects librarian, dialogue editor, music wrangler. Um, you have this huge team of people, each of whom has a very specialized <laughs> skill and role to play in this, all coming together to create the sound. And if we go to the next slide, I just pulled up some credits from a few podcasts, some of whom you might know, some of whom people on this panel helped create. And you often just see this um, kind of mysterious title of the sound designer. And what that sound designer is, is in effect what those 100, almost 100 people were, um, and the Mad Max credits. And on one level, of course, this just speaks to the fact that we work in a uh, low budget, low revenue medium, I suppose. But on the uh, maybe benefit side, I think there's something exciting here about the really compact nature of podcast teams and what that allows creatively. Um, so if you go ahead. Um, as a sound designer, that person who kind of sits at the, the nexus of all these these worlds, I think there are real opportunities to bring together sound, story, music in a way that our role is not simply technical, it's not simply aesthetic, and um, it's also editorial. Um, it's, all, it's all those things in one. And, and so ultimately, the, I think maybe to put it in the context of this uh, conference here, which is really thinking about ideas and education, I guess I want to make the argument um, that the music and sound design is not just the teaspoon of sugar that you know, helps those facts go down, but it is, in fact, part of the information, part of the storytelling. Um, and if you saw the previous talk in here with our friends from Radiolab, uh, they made an ex excellent argument, I'd say, for the same exact case. Um, so what I want to do is present a couple quick examples from a recent show that I worked on. Uh, this is called The Great God of Depression, uh, which is on Radiotopia Showcase. And just a little bit of background, it's a story of two minds, a doctor and a writer, both of whom suffered from different forms of mental illness and how they came together through uh, sort of strange circumstances and helped to kind of save each other in a way. And when dealing with a subject like uh, depression or mental illness, obviously this is a really complex, ineffable, highly personal subject um, that can you want to handle delicately, but you also, in handling something that is so immaterial, you want to find ways of helping to bring the listener into that very internal experience. So in the process of creating music and sound for this, um, I, along with my uh, wonderful co-producers, Pagan Kennedy and Karen Brown, were constantly thinking about how we can incorporate 
sounds from the story, uh, sounds from the world of these characters into the music uh, in ways that really uh, gave it life and, and meaning. So uh, we can go ahead to the next slide. This is the, the first character we meet is Alice Flaherty. She's a neurologist who uh, in the 1990s is stricken with a form of manic depression called hypergraphia in which she writes compulsively on the walls, on her body, on everything around her. Um, and so immediately we're thinking about the sounds of writing and because it, it and because the other character, as I mentioned, is a writer as well. There's this uh, a literary quality that runs throughout the show, um, this idea of putting your mind onto the page that for one character is, a, is an impulse, is a compulsion, and for one it proves a source of great frustration. Um, and so we did right away when I, we were starting to develop music is just take a paper and pen and a microphone and make some sounds on make some sounds of paper. Um, and what we did is uh, we took all the sounds, or I took all the sounds and put them into a sampler, which a sampler is basically, if you don't work in audio production, a really fun tool where you can take any sound from the world, put it in your computer, and then play it on a keyboard just like you would play a piano. So you hit the key and you hear the sound. Um, if you go to the next slide. Um, so this is the sampler instrument I built. You just push each key and you get a little writing sound. Just tried messing around with different sounds. And then ultimately we created some, uh, tried to incorporate this into the, the sort of rhythmic texture of the score itself. And you'll hear that in a second. So this became our kind of hypergraphia theme that, you know, whenever, uh, you know, this, I, this sort of compulsion uh, comes up in the storyline, you start to hear these like, uh, these scratching uh, pen and paper sounds. Um, and it was just a little way we were trying to, you know, without, I mean, I guess it's a little on the nose and as, you know, you could, uh, yeah, you could make different judgment calls with how you use this kind of material. Um, but we felt like it, it added a kind of driving energy to this um, when we were trying to convey this experience. Um, the other example I'll give, if you go to the next slide. So the other character we meet in this story is the novelist William Styron, who you may know is the author of books like Sophie's Choice, The Confessions of Nat Turner. Um, so in the story, uh, Alice Flaherty is William Styron's doctor. And William Styron famously suffered from uh, clinical depression, uh, writer's block, suicidal thoughts uh, in a really profound way. And so for Styron, mental illness represented not this uh, kind of creative, uh, productive explosion, but in fact the opposite of being uh, stymied as a, as a creator and unable to write. And so in looking, casting about for kind of sonic references or sonic materials maybe to help uh, build themes and sounds around his story, we were drawn to um, a particular moment in his narrative. You can go to the next slide. Uh, he tells the story of um, being holed up in his home in Roxbury, Connecticut, and in his words, very near to ending it all. 
and hearing a rhapsody by Brahms, an alto rhapsody playing from the other room and suddenly being moved to life, to live. Um, and so it represents a turning point in his story and listening to the music, it, the music itself goes through a kind of thematic development that um, I felt sort of echoed the, the turns, the, the sort of emotional, chemical, mental turns he was experiencing um, in his life. And so what he decided to do was, um, because the score of Brahms is old enough that it's all public domain and you can do whatever you want with it, um, we, I went through the score and found some moments that I felt could uh, connect with the narrative of Styron. Um, so here's, the, it's just the opening vocal line of the, the, the solo alto, alto voice uh, in this piece. And one second. Um, so I was looking for some thematic material that I felt like could, could connect with Styron's story. Um, so we just listen to this. Um, this is the a recording, I forget the name, but from the 30s. So we were I was interested in this, the melody, the contour of it, um, but didn't want to lean too heavily on this sort of uh, big orchestral sound. Obviously could not use all of the recording I wanted because the recording itself is under copyright. And so what we did is took just that kind of core idea of the melody and developed it into a little uh, theme that um, comes, comes up throughout the episode. So maybe the next video will show just the opening of the final episode, um, which features this theme. Chapter 5, The Shining World. You can actually fade it down if you want. To escape the demands of city life, and it is also the place where an unexpected bomb. So I guess in this last example, um, I guess there's no way to leave that screenshot up, is there? Mm -hmm. That's fine. But um, I guess what I wanted to sort of draw together is um, what you hear in, in the end in this opening sort of like sound montage. Is you hear the scratching sounds of the pen on the paper. Uh, you hear there's some other sampled instruments from uh, an electroshock therapy machine. All the, the like droning sounds are from a old analog analog electroshock machine. Um, then this uh, string melody, which we've ad adapted from the Brahms score. Um, then you know some light sound effects, uh, the archival tape of William Styron and uh, some of his colleagues. And so you can see how all those those layers come together here in a way that. Hopefully, you know, in the way we are thinking about it, and I hope in the experience, kind of blurs the line of what is, quote, music and what is, quote, sound design. Um, <laughs> nice. Um, because, in fact, the two are, um, the goal is that the two are, are working hand in hand. Oh, it seems I'm doing, I'm actually on time, too. So, um, yeah, to sort of to bring it, and I think there's one more slide, actually. Um, and I think, 
Ideally, you know, when, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you zoom out and you look at a big project uh, like this, you, you see it in layers, you see it as discrete um, elements. Um, but I think ultimately a lot of our, our work is to make those, those distinctions invisible so that you don't hear it as discrete chunks, but you hear it as something more seamless um, where each element is helping to tell the story, not just, you know, putting a little icing on it. So, thank you. Hello, hello, hello. I, I just feel like holding it. Yeah, we're, we're all like hunched over I like just, this. I don't know, it just feels nice. Um, it's been so hard not to just like jump in and interrupt you guys and start asking questions. It's, it's been, can I stay afterwards and ask questions? Um, uh, my name's Alexander Overington. Um, I'm the technical director and composer um, of More Perfect, a Radiolab spinoff. Um, I started uh, my career early on as an orchestral composer um, and uh, went on to uh, produce records uh, mostly in Iceland. Um, and a lot of the work I was doing um, right out of conservatory was focused on uh, using uh, solo voice performances and accompanying them with, with uh, bits of found sound and samples and, and uh, synthesized kind of um, electronic music I was creating in, in this basement studio. And uh, eventually it finally occurred to me that there, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between what I was doing and, and radio, um, <laughs> which is working with, <laughs> with uh, speaking voices and, 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 and uh, sort of uh, marrying them to um, uh, all sorts of sound, whether it be music or um, foley or, or ambient, whatever it is. Um, and so I sort of got um, really psyched about the idea of, of merging my work with in, in, into, the, into the radio field. And so um, I now, uh, I've been at uh, New York Public Radio for, for five years and um, have worked on a bunch of shows, uh, but just if you're a casual, casual listener of WMIC, um, you might have heard. Uh, WNYC Studios. So that that. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, you on your phone like at parties. You just right. <laughs> well, I actually. Um, I actually have a proprietary series of overring tones coming out next oh. year. <laughs> <coughs> Uh, so actually, uh, that uh, that 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 took that was 22 weeks for a six-second audio logo, and um, it, it it wasn't as though I was you know personally toiling for 22 weeks, but um, to piggyback onto what Jeremy was talking about with mood boards and um, uh, working with a lot of collaborators, and in this case, um, you know, big wigs. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth and, and a lot of revisions and a lot of versions. And so uh, out of 60 versions, uh, we ended up going back to eight, version eight, <laughs> uh, after 22 weeks. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, I would like to just throw out a couple examples for you, just of audio, um, to showcase a little bit like what my first step is when sitting down with um, tape that producers will give me. 
And the first thing is, is you know, I sort of perform my own sort of like internal little mood board, um, which is to sort of just instantly just, wow, I'll start throwing some sound underneath these people talking to see what works. And um, sometimes it's way more considered than just like throwing paint against the wall. Um, and in the case of a show that I used to work for uh, called Meet the Composer on WQXR, um, a lot of the times the music was chosen because we're interviewing, it's a pro, it's an hour-long interview show where we profile living composers. And so <clears throat> when, <laughs> when we're asking uh, said living composer about their piece, it would, it would be rather uh, inappropriate to play someone else's piece. So, um, <clears throat> so the pieces of music were, were, were preset, essentially. Um, and so uh, there's um, an earlyish episode featuring uh, a composer from New York City called Nico Muley. Um, and uh, the host of the show called Nadia Sirota and Nico were old friends. They were college roommates. And so whenever, uh, <laughs> whenever when you have an interview situation, when, when the host and, and the interviewee know each other, there's always something happens that's a little weird. And they kind of speak in their own, they have their own like secret language kind of, of just mostly giggling. Um, but, you know, so there, <laughs> and so, you know, long interview, and we really were only able to use the non-giggly bits. But um, here is a little bit of raw audio um, in which the composer Nika Muley talks about how anxious and nervous he is most of the time. Um, so you have expressed to me many times uh, extensive frustration about um, various journalists asking you, you know, how do you think you became so successful right. or something <laughs> like that? Can you just talk about why that's frustrating to you? Well, for two reasons. I mean, number one, I, I just going back to what we were talking about before. It's like I, did, I never felt successful. I felt gloomy. Because <laughs> successful, successful. The implication is like, you know, the, the implication is weird um, about what it means to be a successful composer. Because there's there's so many ways to define success, um, and in particular, you know, one thing that, that's always baffled me about composers is when you when you could, when if you say, I got this commission, people are like, oh, congratulations, right? I'm like, I don't know if it's congratulations. The commission is scary. A commission is like a challenge in a, in a weird sense, right? It's like, it's, it's sort of like, here's this big mountain you have to climb. You say congratulations to the other side. Um, so, so the first thing that popped in, well, I don't know. You, what's the first thing that pops in your mind about? Just forget about the content but just the cadence and the rhythm and it was just this stopping and starting and repetition. It's just like, I wish I, 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 I wish I could just, and that feeling that I get from, from the speech, once I, once I then consider the content of what, what Nico is talking about, which is a, a, kind of being anxious about like not, it was like, oh wow, that's actually, the, the, the content and the delivery here are, are already married. Um, and I really wanted to then play some of his music underneath that, that might sort of give you, sort of like reinforce that glimpse into his mind. And so I started listening to several of his records and um, came across a piece called uh, Skip Town that he wrote in 2006. And it's for one piano player playing an upright piano. And then through the speakers, there's like, 17 or 18 other recordings of upright piano also like skip scattering all around and um, I heard this piece and it's it's about four minutes we only need to listen to a minute of it, you can it up 
Thank you, Jeremy. So, uh, gosh, I, 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 it, that was track probably five on the record, and I, I got to track five, and I was like, Whoop. instantly, I had this like this sonic memory thing where I was just like, and I jumped back to half an hour before, and I was listening to that interview, and I was like, oh man, they're, they're they are so the same, and I just I imported the um, that piano piece, and I put it underneath the interview, and I swear without doing a thing. Um, so you have expressed to me many times uh, extensive frustration about um, various journalists asking you, you know, how do you think you became so successful right. or something like that. Can you just talk about why that's frustrating to you? I never felt successful. I felt gloomy. So it, you know, I, I, when I say I didn't do a thing, I mean I, I, I ch little tiny, <laughs> tiny bit. Um, but uh, I think I think the the lesson from from that um, that it was kind of this happy accident, which turned into this. It was this feeling that I wanted to try to recreate as much as I could. Um, which was this this feeling of like total symbio symbiosis between so many different layers in your in your piece, whether it's it's sound design, actual scoring, uh, fully ambience, editorial, whatever it is. It just seems like there was like a total unification of those three layers, and um, so yeah, I tried to uh, approach everything with, with with through that lens. The next example I want to play. Uh, it's um, coming from a, an episode right after uh, interviewed a an amazing uh, like American maverick composer Meredith Monk, um, who has been like a, a champion of vocal um, composing for 30 years, and uh, one of her favorite techniques as a composer is to utilize uh, what's called a hocket, which means that, say, if, if, if um, there's a single melodic line, 
um, it's then split up one by one back and forth between two different people so that it really kind of feels like this call and response. And um, it, it, it's, it's not the easiest thing necessarily to explain uh, on, on, a, on, on a radio, um, but she had written this, this piece called Hakatu and, and uh, we interviewed her about it and we interviewed several weeks later the other performer who performed it with her, this, this man called Theo Blackman. And it turns out they both ended up saying the exact same thing about how crazy hard it was to do this, this thing because you never, you, can't, you never know which bar you're on. And, this. and so um, uh, I, did that, I did the same thing as, as, as in this first example from Nika Muley. I, I layered the piece, Hockett One, underneath Meredith talking about it. And then just on top of it, layered the, the other performer talking about the same thing, and they just kind of lined up in this way that was really beautiful. And uh, it seemed also like you could alternate between the two people describing the same horrible thing as you use this music underneath it. It, it was a way I felt, you, a much better way to explain it, but it felt like showing and not telling. Well, a hocket form for the listeners is a form that you make a melody uh, where each person gets one or two notes to make one melody. Yeah, so if it was just ping pong, ee, 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 that would be easy. That would be very monotonous, actually. But here it is. So all the ms were Meredith and all the ha's were me. Faster than the discursive mind. 
Cool. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's an experience. two examples are two examples of sound design, but I didn't generate any sound. Um, it was just, a, the, the idea was just editing the, 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 the dialogue around the music and vice versa. So this is just a screenshot of my Pro Tools session from that last example, where the hocketing you can sort of see um, is split up between the two, the two um, interviewees, and it's also chopped up in between the little coming up out of the out of the music and so we're explaining what a hocket is by hocketing and so that sort of unification again of sound of like intent and sound design and the editorial and the, the whole concept is sort of is sort of merged um, so uh, fast forward a couple of years I ended up uh, working uh, at more perfect which is a radio lab spin-off about the Supreme Court um, and uh, I was sort of asked to sort of generate a couple ideas for um, a theme song uh, for this show. And um, in a, you know, I sort of wanted to use what, was, use what we had, use what was there, um, and went on to a, a website called oea.com, um, or excuse me, oea.org, <laughs> O-R-G. And um, they have a, a 29.gov, <laughs> a 29-second uh, audio recording on there. When you when I clicked the about tab, I said about, and I was like explain what the website did and what the institution did, and then I had a little a little uh, audio clip that sort of described explains the the genesis of the word oye. <laughs> The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. This, I, this was just, this, I thought this was so cool. So the beginning, I didn't know this, the beginning, okay. Supreme Court, no gavels. They don't have gavels at the Supreme Court. You know, I'm thinking about judges. They're always like, order. It's like, nah, no gavels. Instead, at the beginning of every Supreme Court session, somebody in a big robe comes out with a staff and is like, <laughs> does that routine. And, and it's like, oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. And goes with the staff. And I'm just like, that's so hardcore. <laughs> Um, and it's so musical already. It's like, it's literally sing, oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. And I'm like, fine. So <laughs> I found, I found, um, I, I, I then similarly chopped up that, that recording and mapped it up onto a keyboard mm -hmm. with, a, with a sampler in software and um, uh, made this theme song. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All present having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, and one is to draw the
so you can sort of hear that, that, that the staff being like it, that became the snare for, the, for this drum kit. And the, uh, the, the singing of the Oye be sort of became a refrain and it also um, was uh, chopped up and layered on top of itself, pitch shifted, so it became, it became singing in harmony. Um, and so, uh, again, it's, it's that idea of somehow integrating um, as many elements as you can to sort of create this sort of like very smooth, cohesive um, sound design experience. But uh, how am I doing for time? We should probably Great. leave some time to go on questions. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that is the end. <laughs> We've got about 10 minutes for questions. Um, yeah, right up here. It's right here. <laughs> like, if, yeah. Like, uh, anything. I'd say like just like listen to the world around you and then no matter what you're using, there, there's a free program called Audacity. There's a relatively free program called Reaper. We use Pro Tools, which is very much not free. Um, but, but ultimately it's about the choices you make and it doesn't really matter, I think. Sure, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I, w when I went to, um do this again. Uh, when I went to music conservatory at at, uh, at Oberlin, and I was a, a I was in a department called technology and music and the related arts, um, which literally the, the the department was was in the was in the basement without any windows. They called it the synth dungeon, <laughs> and um, the the professors made like a really strong point. They were like, "We're not going to teach you how to use software." Why? Why? We came here. That's what we want to know. And they were like, listen, the software changes every two years. It's, and something else is going to come out. It's, as long as it's like, if you can teach yourself how to sort of be able to sit down in front of any piece of, so of, of software, whether because there, there's so many, there's Ableton, Reaper, Audacity, Logic, Pro Tools, Fruity Loops, Fruity Loops, um, Digital Performer, um, uh, uh, Cubase, um, yeah, there's so many, but they all kind of do the same thing. They, they all do the same thing, and um, uh, it really just depends on on uh, how detailed kind of work you want to do. So, like Pro, Pro Tools, for instance, you can get really detailed, super detailed, and it's like $700 uh, baseline. But there's other software that's free, and you can do basic stuff and and make really cool moves and get really cool sound for a free software. Audacity's free. Reaper's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, but the the one thing I would add though is um, no matter what program you're using, I often refer people to Lynda.com as like a quick way to like it's like orienting yourself in a car, like this is where the steering wheel is, this is like where the brake shift is, and the tutorials on Linda are often really good. And also, um, usually free through your public library or through your school library, or th there are a number of ways that you can get access to it 
for free without stealing it also. So it's a, it's a really good resource. Other questions? Um, right here. I mean, I guess the, the first consideration is copyright that we sometimes have to deal with. That's sort of like one technical layer if you're talking about previously published music. But then once you figure that out, there is, you know, if you're using like library music, copyright free music, I think there's something we didn't talk about so much as I think a whole skill set. There's really an art to working with pre-recorded, pre-mastered, mixed music and make, and incorporating it into your show in a way that feels, uh, you know, sort of custom and tailored. If you listen to a show like The Daily, the New York Times podcast, you know, none of that is, you know, custom scored. It's all from a library that they've built. Um, but I think they're very good at taking pre-made music and making it feel cozy, you know, so they're, and, and I think it starts with your ear, like, like Jeremy was saying, you know, being able to, you know, pick out music that's gonna work, find the moments in the music that are gonna work well if you wanna like bring it up to emphasize something. Um, and then there are some technical tricks of like learning how to fade things in and out, cut things, you know, find good like in starting points and end points. Um, so I'd say that it's a lot of ear training, but then also there are some technical skills for that too. And if you wanna use music that already exists that, that's, that's not in public domain, if you remix it, they can't sue you. That, that's not, don't, uh, <laughs> they can sue you, they might just not win. I'm not a lawyer, uh, but yeah. Is there any sort of standard for remixing? Uh, maybe a lawyer, like how much? I didn't know that, that seems fascinating. <laughs> No, I think uh, the, the, the general rule that we follow is that if, if a piece of music um, is substantially altered, um, is the legal language that I've heard, substantially altered, um, and then that's considered uh, um, a, a remix as opposed to just a, a, a re, you know, just copy-paste. Yes. So. I think the, there have been Supreme Court cases, like if you know the case of like Two Live Crew in the 90s, and there was another one around uh, Pretty Woman, around that sort of established precedence of you know how much you have to alter satire, mess with something to make it okay, but it's murky. Um, how about over here? Uh, like in, where to start in terms of what to put on the mood board or after? No, after that's made, but you're still not really sure how to approach a certain thing. Yeah, um, I, I think um, it's always good to have something. So I, I really like Alex's kind of brute force method and something I do a lot where um, I sort of have lots of options and so I'll, sometimes I even do crazy like computer things where I have generative approaches and I have a list of 40 things that I just listen to and I choose the one that I like and like 
30 of them are terrible and nine of them are like mediocre. And then there's one happy coincidence that sounds really good. Um, just yeah, trial and error, make bold choices, I would say. Don't play it safe, like make a choice that says something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as much, it depends, sometimes I get instantly, sometimes I get really frustrated and it doesn't work, I have to put it away and take a walk, and to, it just totally depends. I think we can do maybe two more questions, sure. When my clients is here. <laughs> uh, I mean, in that case, yeah. Uh, I sort of direct it. I, it. It's definitely, like, I definitely think it's the designer's role to direct that conversation towards getting, you know, people don't know how to give creative feedback, and that's fine. Um, and it's the sound designer's job to direct them towards giving the feedback that you need. And depending on the project, sometimes that feedback is different. Um, so I, I'd say, yeah, it was like, I was pretty hands-on in that sense. But it's all part of building that language. That yeah, finding totally. that common language, which is so important when you're collaborating. And also not trying to force anything on them. Like, we, I wasn't trying to force my aesthetic on them. We were just trying to discover something that worked together. Uh, sorry, um, one more, maybe in the very back, and then we can continue the conversation in the hall. So I, I, my podcast is all about musicians. Uh, I, I, I really think it's always composition. Um, I'm, I'm hard pressed to find an example of when it's not. Um, even when you're not including any, even when the task is just, hey, at, tr trim this down a little bit, you know, this, this tape, and don't put any, it's like you're still thinking about timing and pacing and sometimes there's just, in order to get like someone to deliver a sentence naturally, Sometimes the way they, they said it is not, is, that doesn't really give this, that sort of, you, you end up putting, adding stumbling or taking out mm -hmm. some stumble over a word or making the response to a question a little bit longer and it seems like someone's thinking about it a little bit more. You can sort of imply certain things, total little subtle things just by just the, the pacing and the editing of like a response to a question. And so that feels to me like, pretty musical as well, but um, I think the only, w the only time you're not allowed to do that by NPR standards is when you're, you're editing the president, <laughs> any president. Um, you're not allowed to slice or alter in any way, but everything else I, f I find is, it's, it's fair game. I'm curious, Diane, do you come from a, a mus like performer, musician, composer background? No, well? not at all. So, because I know, I mean, like I think, Several of us maybe come from, a lot of people who do what we do come from a music background, but not everybody does. Yeah. Uh, maybe do you want to speak to how you approach music and sound, um, incorporating the similar language and approach? But yeah, and I, I, think what, I think what you said about, about sound and music 
really combining them or, or making them seamless or is a lot of the type of work that I do. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't I don't actually know how to read music or whatever and um, and that musical instrument dreams project was a huge project that I had worked on for a number of years right. to really be able to convey that. Initially I was gonna get musicians to create the music, and then I created everything. Um, so I don't come from, and I'm ad admiring you guys for being composers, actually. <laughs> so. But you don't have to be composers. Right, so. right. Um, yes. I think we should close there. Thank you all so much for coming out. And we'll be around if you want to come and talk more. <laughs>